All right, so we are in uh, first the book of First Kings, chapter twenty, this morning. If this is your uh, first time or first couple of times, uh, typically what we do is we go through books of the Bible together with occasional breaks for this and that. But sort of the default mode is to go through Scripture, and we've been in First and Second Kings for uh, this is the twelfth week and. Just to point out, like First Kings and Second Kings, in case you forgot, it's one big book, and we're about to the end of First Kings, but it's not really the end. So, if you're expecting, if you're reading along in your own reading, and you get to the end of the First Kings, it's, it just sort of stops, and, and it's quite literally somebody just said, "We'll stop here. This is a good chunk, and then we'll do the other chunk after." And it all just it's one book. All right, so don't be confused by that, and we will go through the whole thing. Okay. Uh, so we're entering into a long section this morning of 1 Kings that takes a close look at King Ahab, which uh, Kings, the author of Kings calls the worst king of all the kings that came before him. He, he, and, and specifically, he says he offended God more than anyone else, which is by definition the worst, right? Uh, God's feeling about you is the definitive feeling and the definitive truth about you, right? So when, when it says God, he offended God more than anyone else, it means he's the worst. He's the absolute worst. And we're going to do a little kind of investigation for the next couple of weeks, for the next little section of Kings, about why exactly he's the worst. Okay, because there's lots of reasons. And we're going to learn a lot. We're going to learn a lot about what not to do. He's a wonderful negative example. I feel like that's half of my life's purpose, is to be a negative example to people, right? Don't do, children, don't do like I did. Don't make the same mistake I did when I was your age. Your parents constantly saying that to your kids, right? Don't, don't make the mistake I made when I was at this stage in your life. And we get a lot of that from Ahab, right? Not from him, we get that from the author. Ahab seems to never learn from his mistakes. But, um, so chapter 20, which we're looking at this morning, has some of the wildest stories in the entire two books of Kings. We have a prophet who's eaten by a lion because he refuses to punch another prophet in the face. That's a fun one. Uh, we have that part of the story. We have a wall that falls down and kills 27,000 Syrians. Um, a king gets drunk along with 32 other kings in a wild party. All this while two epic battles are fought between Israel and Syria, all in one chapter. Throughout all of this, Ahab displays nothing but foolishness and rebellion and self-interest and rebellion against God. He is terrible throughout all of these moments. And despite this, God proves himself mercifully victorious anyway. It's... To me, it's one of the most astounding pictures of grace in the Old Testament, is you have Ahab's like, inability to do anything right from like, a spiritual perspective and just a practical leadership perspective, and God still rescues. So let's start here in verses 1 through 6. It says, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. <laughs> your best wives and children also are mine. 
And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Bold, right? So you might think you read that wrong, but yes, Ben-Hadad, this pagan Syrian king, creates a coalition of 32 other kings to start with, basically surrounds Israel, and he then sends messengers to Ahab and to stand in his court and not just say, we're going to attack you, but he says, all of your silver and gold and your wives and your children are mine. Not please, not let's negotiate, not we'll fight you for it, but it's just mine, and I'm here, I'm going to take it. And apparently Ahab didn't respond very quickly, and so he sent another messenger who says, look, tell you what, I'm not going to wait for you to send it to me, I'm coming to your place tomorrow, and I'm going to search your house, and I'm going to search your servants' houses, and I'm going to take not what I like, but I'm going to take what you like. I'm going to figure out your favorite stuff, and I'm going to take that. Why would he do that? Because he's not just after the silver and the gold and the wives and the children. He wants to humiliate Ahab. He wants to take the things that are precious to him. Pretty awful. What's even worse is Ahab's response. Ahab should have said, tell Ben-Hadad and his 32 friends that all I have belongs to Yahweh. And you can't take from him. All of this, the palace, the silver and gold, the people, they all belong to God, including me. But instead what Ahab says, it says, I am yours. I belong, I, the king of Israel, put here by God himself, I belong to you. I am your slave, Ben-Hadad. Talk about rolling over. I mean, he doesn't just roll over. He pays homage to, he bows the knee to this foreign pagan king next door. What Ahab should have said to God long ago, he now says to Ben-Hadad. Remember Ahab, his big problem, his big issue so far up to this point is idolatry. He has led, him and his wife Jezebel, have led the nation into deeper and deeper idolatry. And we've had that showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal where God clearly wins and shows that Baal doesn't even exist. Yet Ahab and Jezebel persist in this rebellion against God where, where Ahab should have been going, God, I'm yours and this kingdom is yours. These people are yours. All that I have is yours and bow the knee and worship God. That's what God wanted from him. He can't say that to God, but he can say it when the pagan king comes knocking on his door. He'll say it to him. And then when Ahab rolls over, Ben-Hadad decides to take even more. Now he says, I'm sending my servants, and they're going to take whatever they want, and from whoever they want, including his family itself. This forces Ahab in the story to, he realizes... Right, this guy's just going to keep taking because I've just kind of laid down 
and offered no resistance. So he's just going to keep taking. You ever had people like that in your life? Where you, they're manipulative and intimidating and you kind of let them take an inch and then they just take a mile and they keep taking and taking and taking. So Ben-Hadad is forced to go to his council of elders and tell them what's happened. I think it's crazy that they didn't know at this point. <laughs> they didn't know that messengers from Syria had come and done all of that. He had kept it inside, uh, inside the circle. So he tells his council of elders, and of course they tell him, well, don't, uh, don't do what he says. <laughs> like, maybe, maybe we should say no. I don't know if that occurred to you, king, but maybe we should say no. Ben-Hadad receives the news of Ahab's pushback, and he's apparently drinking with his king buddies in tents. This is a little foreshadowing in the story. So Ben-Hadad, I think, apparently just thinks this is going to be the easiest. These guys are pushovers. We have twice the size of their army. Uh, we have 30, a coalition of 32 kings on, all together. We're going to take over. It's going to be easy. So he's already, he's pre-gaming the battle. He's already drinking in tents with his buddies when he gets the news that Ahab has changed his mind and is pushing back a little. This is what happens next. Verse 13 to 18, it says, And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, who shall begin the battle? He answered, you. <laughs> I don't think he wanted to hear that. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. After the, and after them, he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And they went out at noon, while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths. That's like a small tent. He and the 32 kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, men are coming out from Syria, or excuse me, Samaria. He said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive, or if they have come out for war, take them alive. That statement makes no sense, that last statement. He's drunk. That's what that means. He's just not, he's, he's saying, oh, they... If, they, if they're going to make war, take them alive. If, if, if they're not going to, just take, take them alive or, or, and then he's just making no sense. So we have, I think this is a lovely picture. We have two grossly incompetent kings on both sides of a battle. And neither one of them is capable of leading clearly whatsoever. One guy is drunk with all his buddies. The other guy is scared, quaking in his boots. But here in the middle of all of this horrible incompetence, a prophet has spoken to Ahab and told him exactly what to do. This is the grace of God in action. And he tells him, look, I want you to get the servants of the district governors. This is like the regional director's slaves, right? These are not soldiers. These are, this is like the JV of the JV team. This is like the third string of the JV team he's sending out against the NFL. All right? He tells them, those are the people I want to fight, and you, the weakest, most cowardly one among them, are going to lead them out. 
And Ahab says, okay, we'll do that. Thankfully, thankfully, he at least obeyed that much. Of course, he also gets 7,000 actual soldiers that he puts in reserve just behind those 232, just in case God doesn't come through for him. But he still does the part that God told him to do. So at least he does that. And they go out, and they completely wipe out the enemy. It says, why should God, why would God send a prophet to Ahab? This is the question. He has done nothing but lead Israel into idolatry, rebellion, and foolishness. And he has done nothing to invite God to speak to him. He hasn't even prayed. Ahab has not even prayed and asked God for help. He is hiding out in his palace, scared to death, making no decisions. He has not even prayed. Verse 13 tells us exactly why. It says, so that you know that I am Yahweh. That's the reason God goes and speaks to Ahab. It's not because of his faithfulness. It's not because of his goodness. It's not because in this moment he has, he has finally been broken and said, okay, I, now, I can see now I need to ask you for help. Here I am, God. I, I've put myself in this terrible position. What a worm I am. Would you save me? There is none of that. In fact, there is never any of that. There's a hint of it, but it's not real. A little bit later. God intervenes because God wants him to know and everyone to know, including Syria, that he's God. The prophet tells Ahab to personally lead the third-string JV team out to fight. I think that's God's way of telling him what he ought to be doing. Ahab, this is the kind of thing you should be doing. Ahab doesn't learn. They win the battle relatively easily, but Ben-Hadad escapes back home. This is also a theme with Ben-Hadad. He escapes back home while all of his soldiers are dying at the hands of 232 servants. So the same group of prophets come back to Ahab after winning the first battle and tell him that God had told them that Ben-Hadad's going to be back in the spring and he's going to be in full force and they need to be ready. Okay, so he gets another word from God. Say, look, this is not over. Don't get cocky. They're coming back and they're coming back hard and you need to be ready and they're coming back in the spring. At the same time, Ben-Hadad in Syria gets counsel from his team. So you have this interesting part of the story where you get Ahab getting counsel from his prophets, and you have, at the same time, Ben-Hadad escapes back, and he gets counsel from his elders, from his leaders who were not following Yahweh. And what they tell him is that, look, the reason you lost this battle is because the Israelite God is only God of the hills, the forest, but he's not the God of the valleys. So what we need to do is we need to go fight them in a valley. And if we just fight them in the valley, their God can't come down out of the hills into the valleys and we'll, we'll get them next time. He says, okay, let's do it. Ben-Hadad is not the brightest light, is he? He's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, as they say. He believes this. He believes that the Israelite God is too small to venture out of the woods and out of the hills to defeat them because it's clear to them that they should have won. 232 non-soldier servants beat thousands of Syrian soldiers. How can that be? 
It must have been some kind of divine intervention, but it can't be that this God is all-powerful. He must be limited, and he must be limited by the hills. He can't get over that. It's just too, it's too steep. I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But it's a terrible mistake. It's always a terrible mistake to think God is small. They've underestimated him. So chapter 20, verses 26 to 30, said this is the second battle that's going to come. This is the spring battle, the battle that happens in the spring that the prophets told him what happened. It says, in the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord, Lord is a God, lowercase g, of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. There's the motivation, the same motivation again, is demonstrating who he is to everybody. That I am the God, the one, only, and true God that there is. There is no other God. Verse 29, and they encamped opposite one another seven days, sizing each other up. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined, <clears throat> and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, 100,000 foot soldiers, in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. Ben-Hadad always escapes. Because Ben-Hadad is, is all about Ben-Hadad. So again, the battle is woefully outmatched. The description here is very poetic. It's striking. Like a, like a flock of little goats. Meh, meh. Just bumping into each other, hanging out in the middle of a giant field. And the Syrians were numbered like they filled the whole country. Every, from everything you could see. Everywhere there could be a soldier, there was a soldier. And this little flock of goats standing in front of this multitude of soldiers. But somehow this little flock of goats killed 100,000 of their soldiers and so frightened them that the rest that were remaining ran into the city behind the walls, scared of this little flock of goats. And when they went and hid behind the wall in the city, somehow the wall fell down on top of them and killed 27,000. The remainder of the enemy were killed by God's hand. Never make the mistake of thinking that Yahweh is a small God and not the God. He loves to make a point about that. So Ben-Hadad somehow survives this by hiding out in some place in the city apart from his military soldiers who had given their life because of his order. But he has no option at this point but to beg for mercy. He has nowhere to go, nowhere to hide, nowhere to run. So he goes to Ahab and he begs for mercy. Ahab is, as usual, easily swayed. It's unbelievable. So much so that he calls Ben-Hadad my brother. 
That's in verse 32. He calls him his brother. The guy, the pagan king who had gathered 32 other kings to destroy Israel and humiliate them and take from them what God had given them. And now he says, my brother, we're brothers. He's impressed that he survived. Not only that, but he releases him because he promised not to do it again. They make a covenant. They make a deal. And he says, hey, hey, brother, <laughs> you can, if you just promise not to do it again, you can go. He says, sure, I promise. And he just walks away. Of course, we'll find out just a little bit later that that peace lasted three years. That promise lasted exactly three years before he's back at it again. Then in the aftermath, Ben-Hadad is confronted by a prophet, or excuse me, Ahab is confronted by a prophet. I put Ben-Hadad in the notes, that's wrong. Another unnamed prophet, there's all these unnamed prophets in Israel helping out Ahab comes and confronts him about this, with this weird story. Prophets are weird. Sometimes they you know, get a similar story with Nathan when he confronts David. If you remember that story, where Nathan finds out about Bathsheba and he kind of knows, I can't just walk in there and confront David in front of everybody of adultery and murder and a cover-up of that murder and adultery. So instead he makes up a story about the ewe lamb and all of that and David gets mad and then Nathan goes, aha, you're the one. And he, catches, he kind of catches him condemning himself, tricks him into condemning himself. This is very similar, similar story. A prophet dresses up as a soldier, a servant, it says, finds another prophet friend and asks him to beat him up. Punch me in the face. That prophet refuses, and he says, fine, a lion's going to eat you. <laughs> and he goes and finds another prophet to beat him up. It was rough being an Old Testament prophet. I mean, if you just didn't obey God the first time. I mean, Justin King so far, you've had two stories now of prophets giving, doing a minor disobedience or delay in obeying God, and a lion comes out and kills them. So, you know, I feel like if God had asked me to be a prophet in the Old Testament, I would have politely declined and said, I'm just not faithful enough. I don't want to die by a lion. Uh, anytime soon but this guy just says no and he says fine and he walks away and the guy gets eaten by a lion and he finds someone else who I'm sure at this point you know he was saying yeah whatever you need man like uh, whatever whatever you ask I'm doing it right now no delay no lions please right so he, he helps him out he, he punches him and beats him so he looks pretty beaten up like a beaten up soldier and he's got a bandage over his face so nobody can recognize him and disguises himself, and he goes to King Ahab, and he tells him a story. He says that he was responsible for guarding a prisoner, and he had agreed that if he failed to guard this prisoner well, that he would receive the fate of the prisoner. Like, if I, if I let this guy run off, or whatever, anything happened to him, then you can do to me what was supposed to happen to him. And then he says, and I failed. He says, tells the king, like, the guy escaped. And Ahab says, well, you've sealed your fate. Yeah, you should receive the punishment for not doing your duty. And the, soul, the prophet takes the bandage off of his face, and it's the big reveal, like, you know, 
what are you, dirty rotten kids, you know, kind of moment. And he reveals himself to be the prophet. Ahab recognizes him and realizes what he's just done. He has condemned himself because how much more is Ahab responsible for Israel than a soldier would be responsible to guard a prisoner? This shows you not only is Ahab weak and rebellious and idolatrous and foolish, but he's also a hypocrite. <laughs> because he'll, lay, he'll pass judgment on one of his soldiers, who's been beaten up in battle, by the way, <laughs> at least he thinks, but he will not pass judgment on himself by the same standard. So what are we to make of this wild story? Like, how can we, I mean, it's a fun story. It would make a pretty good movie. Maybe the Chosen will do Elijah's story next. But what are we supposed to, how do we apply this to ourselves? I'll give you three. Number one, God does not need us to accomplish his plans. Like, he absolutely does not need you to do what he's going to do. In fact, based on these two battles, God seems to prefer battles that are lopsided. You see that? He's the one that tells Ahab to not go out there in full strength. He tells him, God looks at Israel, he says, who's the weakest, worst fighters here? And he goes, well, there's these district governors. Those guys are kind of fat and slovenly and don't do much. But hey, you know what would be even better is their servants. Let's send them out. Not all of us, let's do 232. Send those out to fight these seasoned warriors. He makes it lopsided on purpose. He seems to prefer it that way. And the answer is right there in both stories to demonstrate that he is Yahweh. He's the God of gods, the, the, the one true God, the one living God. There are no others. And he's demonstrating it through these people so that nobody can look at that situation and say, you know, those Israelites are really great fighters. Nobody came away from that saying that. They came away from that going, God, he's the one true God. Just like on Mount Carmel, here he's shown up again. To consider your own challenges from this perspective, the odds being against you is not a sign of God being unfaithful to you. This is how we look at our life. We see insurmountable challenges, whether they're in our own character or they're in the world around us, challenging us, keeping us, preventing us from moving as quickly as we'd like, or, or gaining traction in our life the way we'd like, or getting something we need, or we're asking God for, and we get frustrated because the odds seem completely lopsided. It seems unfair. And so we think that's God being unfaithful, but that's just God intentionally stacking the odds against you so he gets the glory. That's how he likes it. The more lopsided it is, the happier he is because he gets more glory with the victory. Number two, we should see both of these kings as negative examples. We should not lead like them, and we should not follow those that lead like them. To recognize the kind of unsubmitted foolishness. It's like a willful weakness. Ahab kind of escapes accountability because he's so weak. And he just sort of shrugs his shoulders and says, I just can't. <laughs> I just can't do it. Both of these men are examples of what it looks like to not fear the Lord. 
Ahab's lack of submission to God must clearly demonstrate it in how he does not take God's word seriously. We'll see this next week uh, when, when you get sort of a pseudo-repentance from him, which really just moping around. He does a lot of moping. That's how this story ends. He goes home sullen, pouty. My first title for this sermon was Ahab's, Ahab the Pouty King. Because he's just a lot of pouting and whining and making no decisions and allowing Jezebel to take over and lead the nation into idolatry. But here it's a lack of submission to God. He makes small corrections that get him out of the current jam he's in, but he never truly bows the knee to God. And I think this is typical of all of us, at least at different seasons. Like we get into a jam, and then God comes in, and, he, and the church comes in, and friends come in, and they rescue you from that jam you're in. And as soon as you escape the trouble, you're back to waffling around and hedging your bets. And say, God, I'll do what you tell me to do, but I'm also going to pile up 7,000 soldiers behind me just in case I can't actually depend on you. I'm going to constantly hedging your bets until that collapses in on itself one day and you get another problem and you run to God and he rescues you from that problem and then you're back to hedging your bets again. This is the cycle we go through in life. So as hard as I'm being on Ahab, I think if you're going to put yourself in this story somewhere, that's where you put yourself. You put yourself right there on that throne with him. And have to, we have to admit that we're more like Ahab than we want to be. <laughs> we're double-minded, limping between two opinions, as Elijah put it, put it. Ahab is happy to let God get him out of a jam, but he's unwilling to worship God alone without hedging his bets with other solutions. This is what idolatry was about at this time. Idolatry was not about being enamored with some fake deity. It, it, there was no joy in worshiping Baal. I mean, did you see joy in those prophets of Baal marching around that altar and whipping themselves and cutting themselves and wailing? No, there's no joy. They're doing it to get something from that God, like for them, it was to, get to make their crops grow. Other gods were like the goddess of fertility. I want to have babies and strong babies. So I'll worship. It's all about getting something you think God's not going to do for you. I don't think God's going to come through for me in this area, this area of need. So I'm going to go reach over here and like get it from somewhere else. It's all about hedging your bets. And this is Ahab. This is, this is his character constantly hedging his bets against God. And number three, the grace of God to Ahab is absolutely incredible, incredible, and it's the same for you. Ahab was a fool, a coward, and an idolater, yet God repeatedly sent his prophets to speak to him and rescue him anyway. There is nothing about him that deserves it. There is no faith in Ahab that God is responding to. It's because God is just good. He's merciful. God's patience with Ahab is long-suffering, but by the way, it does not last forever. <laughs> Ahab must bow the knee at some point. God did not have to speak to Ahab. God did not have to keep Syria from winning those battles. In fact, later, eventually, God says, enough is enough. And he lets the nations come in 
and scatter Israel. But even that is God's mercy because it's designed to bring Israel to repentance. He brings them back home later. He scatters them, brings them to repentance, and then brings them back home. So even that's merciful. If you take a snapshot of God's judgment and you miss the mercy, you don't have a complete picture of who God is. This is how God is with us. So I'd like us to pray. Number one, to pray if you are kind of straddling the fence, as they say. Like you've met God in the sense of he solves my problems and rescues me. Like God saved me from hell. God saved me from a bad marriage. God saved me from a bad relationship with my parents. God saved me from whatever, some calamity. And that a lot of times that brings you like into the fold. But I always feel like there's another moment where you have to decide, like, I'm all in with him. Like, no more messing around. <laughs> no more standing with one foot out the door and one foot in. No more like, well, my life is submitted to God in a crisis, but not otherwise. I'll do my thing until I hit a roadblock, and then I'll ask him for help, and then I'm back to doing my own thing. You cannot live that way. God will not leave you alone if, he's, if he loves you. He won't leave you alone. He'll keep saying, stop. He'll, he'll stop blessing your idols. Because what we tend to do is say, God, come, come. I got this idol I'm making. It's really cool. It's really doing a lot for me. And it would be great if, uh, you know, since you love me so much, if you could come and polish it for me <laughs> and bless it. And we get mad at God when he comes up and he says, sure, and he knocks it over and crushes it into bits. We go, but that was my idol. I worked hard on that. He says, I want you after me and me alone. No hedging your bets. So he goes to the 7,000 soldiers you've piled up behind you, and he says no to those 7,000. Your security blanket is gone. And I feel like this morning that maybe some of us, or maybe all of us to some level, need to say once again to God, I'm all in. Whatever you ask of me, whatever you want from me, and if there's idols in my life that I'm, de that I'm depending on, I am happy for you to destroy them and pulverize them into dust, whatever it takes. I'm all in with you. No more waffling between two opinions. God, please help me not be like Ahab. I need your help. But also, I think it would be great for us to express our gratitude to God for his grace. That here I am, and here you are, way too much like the wrong examples in the Bible. <laughs> but here God is speaking to us once again saying, hey, like, go that way, don't go this way. Embrace your weakness. Don't pretend like you're strong when you're not. All you need is 232 servants. You don't need 100,000 soldiers. Just relax. And he still speaks to us and draws us in. So I'd, why don't we stand up together and Just pray, and I'll pray for you, and I encourage you to pray yourself. And then we'll worship God together and close. Let's pray.
God, I do pray that you would help us to have your perspective on our challenges in our life. Not just the little ones, but the big ones that seem to just wildly outweigh our strength. The challenges in our life that are out of proportion to what we can handle. All the things we can't solve. God, I pray that right now you would give us the faith to have a transformed perspective on those things that as scary as that is for us, for you, it's exactly how you like it. You're not worried. You're not afraid. You know exactly what you're going to do when you're going to do it. And you don't need us to accomplish it. You don't need all of our strength and ability. You don't even need our hard work to pull it off. So Lord, I pray that we would be able to be people that can relax in the face of such terrible conflict. To be at peace when there's a threat. When there's a threat to our life and the kind of life we want to have, God, I pray that we would be the kind of people that can be at peace because we trust you and we know you. That we know that you are the one true God. And we know that you love us and you're on top of it. God, that would protect us from picking up and collecting little idols in our life, hedging our bets against what you've promised us. God, that we wouldn't grip those idols too tightly, but instead we would allow you, even right now this morning, to come and take them and dismantle them in our life. God, I pray that we would be the kind of people that when you say send out 232 servants, that that's all we do. (laughs) Help us to resist the temptation to not trust you. Holy Spirit, we confess that we need your help to do this. God, I pray that it would begin with theme of this morning seems to have been just worshiping you in the hard places. So God, I pray that we would be people who stand in front of that multitude of enemies like a flock of little goats and that we would worship you. That we would see you and give our hearts to you and give our voices to you standing in front of the terrible odds. God, help us to be people like that. In the name of Jesus. Amen.